Good morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, for believers everywhere who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, recognizing the differences in our faith walks and laying those aside right now to celebrate the unity of our shared belief that Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, and resurrected. We thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that as we share this morning anecdotes, fables, and even personal testimonies that affirm, that affirm those common set of beliefs, that it is your word that would speak boldly and affirmatively to this testimony of ours. He is victorious, and as believers, so are we. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Good to be here this morning. I'm going to share with you a little bit. Uh, we're going to start in kind of a different place today. I'm going to share with you the birth of Jesus. We're going to start right with the birth. Because after all, how can we celebrate resurrection without believing that he came here and he died for us? Regarding the birth of Jesus, I had to go back a little bit, and I hope you'll join me in this journey. If you were here with us, from November 28th through December the 24th of last year is a special time, a time of Advent that we celebrated together as a family here at Forth and amongst many kingdom believers around the world. Advent, if you'll remember, is this time of anticipation and preparation, this time of expectation of celebrating the nativity of Jesus Christ, the first coming, Emmanuel, God with us. Pretty special. Well, going back to that time of year last year, for me, and I'm a bit nostalgic, in fact, my wife would say I lived too much in the past, but that's okay. I think there's a lot to be learned from our histories. I think our stories are extremely powerful and I think embracing what God is doing in our past, present, and the anticipation of the future is so vitally important for believers like ourselves. And so as I went back and revisited that time, I couldn't help but think of several times prior to that. You know, Christmas comes right at the end of Advent, and that is the ultimate celebration. And when I thought about the past several years, I couldn't help but think about this tradition that started just some time ago with our first grandchild and my reading of a Christmas story to him. What a special time that was. One of the favorite stories that I shared with our grandchildren, by the way, we started with one grandchild like everybody does. Well, not everybody. I guess there are twins and triplets and all that kind of stuff. But we started with that first grandchild, and I remember what a personal and intimate moment was. Him sitting on my lap, enjoying the story, my spending a very 
wonderful time with him, sharing the meaning of that story. And what has happened around us, praise God, is we now have a semicircle of grandchildren. And there are four of them. Now, I know I have my children here today. Uh, some of them are saying, Dad, they're six. <laughs> but two of them can't sit in a semicircle yet is the problem. They kind of bobble a little bit. They start good, and then things kind of materialize and doesn't go so well. So, but I have enjoyed that. I've enjoyed spending that time with them. And one in particular, this favorite story that I have is called The Tale of the Three Trees. Now, you may have heard of this story. It's a wonderful life mess message wrapped up in a faith-based fable. Wonderful story. If you haven't heard of it, it'll be new for you today. So hopefully that will keep you out of REM, at least while the time that I'm up here. But if you're not, if you are familiar with it, I'd want you to rethink it. I want you to just take a deliberate moment and really invite yourself into this story. I want to encourage you to take in all the fullness and goodness of God's perspective about you, you personally, as you consider this story. So let's go ahead and give you a little bit of an overview of the story. The tale of the three trees follows three trees. What a surprise. Who grew up with hopes that of what they could be, just like many of us do. The first tree wished that someday he could hold treasure. The second tree wished that he would be crafted into a boat, a really magnificent boat that would carry kings and queens everywhere. The third tree decided that her purpose was simply to stay on that mountain and point to God for all of her life. Years pass on, and soon the trees grew older, and they grew stronger, they grew taller. One day, three men came and decided to cut the trees down. When the time came for the first tree to be carved, he expected, as you remember, to be carved into a wonderful sailing vessel, or a treasure chest. I'm on the second tree already. Treasure chest. And he was anticipating this idea of being carved into this wonderful treasure chest. But instead, he was carved into a simple feeding box for animals. Animals go in day in and day out, eating the of the first tree, until one day, a couple comes and lays by the manger. They place their newborn baby boy, Jesus, into the manger. And suddenly, the first tree realized he held the greatest treasure of all. Now, the second tree's hope, as you'll remember, was to be carved into a sailing vessel something that would carry kings and queens everywhere. But instead, she was carved into a fishing boat. The tree brought in large amounts of dead fish every day. One day, however, a group of men showed up. And they went out to sea on the boat, and a large storm began. The men began shaking their companion awake, and he stood, and he calmed the seas. The second tree realized at that moment that she carried the greatest king of all. 
Well, the third tree was most discouraged when he was cut down, as all he ever wanted to do was simply point to God. He wonders why he wasn't left on the mountain to do so. When he's made into a cross for Jesus to carry, he feels dirty and harsh and cruel. In the end, however, he sees that he had been made into one of the most recognizable symbols the world would ever know. So it is with the story of the three trees, this, this tale, this fable, this life message, I believe, wrapped up in this faith-based fable. And I always pause for a moment, and this is the most special time that I have with my grandchildren. I hope you will do the same right now. Pause for a moment. I think it's important that we take a breath, that we really consider, we contemplate, we meditate on this really important lesson wrapped up in this fable. I always emphasize to my grandchildren that when they feel they are not valued or the world tries to tell them so, I hope they'll remember this story because they need to focus on the value that they bring as an individual wherever God has them in their life. And I think this is a good message for all of us. And so it is with you. No matter where you are in your faith journey this morning, I think this is an applicable story for all of us. The moral of the tale of the three trees, after all, and the purpose of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is that you matter. You matter. You matter. Have you ever considered that? Well, I am sure there are times when you recognize how much you matter, but I'm sure there are times when you feel you don't. And from his perspective, he gave it all for you because you matter. And so it is with the tale of the three trees. Now let me read you from the best story ever about the first coming of Jesus. From Matthew, eight, from Matthew 1, 18 through Matthew 2, 1, reading from the New International Reader's Version. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary and Joseph had promised to get married. But before they started to live together, it became clear she was going to have a baby. She became pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph was faithful to the law, but he did not want to put her to shame in public. So he planned to divorce her quietly. But as Joseph was thinking about this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. The baby inside her is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to have a son. You must give him the name Jesus. That's because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to bring about what the Lord had said would happen. He had said through the prophet, the virgin is going to have a baby. She will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God with us. Joseph woke up. He did what the angel of the Lord commanded to him to do. He took Mary home as his wife. But he did not sleep with her until she gave birth to a son. And Joseph gave him the name Jesus. 
Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. This happened while Herod was king of Judea, and after Jesus' birth, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. I want you to just sit with that for just a moment. Jesus died. The Father sent his Son to die for you. Imagine for a moment that you were there. You were one of his followers. And you had witnessed his many miracles. Jesus healing the sick, the paralytic, bringing Lazarus back from the dead, walking on water. You believed he was the one who had been prophesied about. When Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. But they didn't think he would die. When Jesus even predicted his death, Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. But it did. He died. What would have been your reaction if you were there? What questions would you have asked if you had been there? Would you have said, Why? Why did he have to die? And what will I do? What is my response to this? Why would he die for me, a sinner, unworthy? I think Colossians gives us a good indication of why he did. It describes us as being alienated from God, and we were enemies because of our evil behavior Alienated comes from the root word alien, which means strangers or foreigners. That described all of us, right? We had made ourselves strangers because of the sin and evil behavior in our life. Is there anything worse than being a stranger to God? Would there be anything worse than Him looking at you and saying, I don't know you? Would anything else matter? But God, but God, being full of mercy and grace and love, He didn't leave us there. He made a way when there was no way. In verse 22, it tells us that He had reconciled us by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in His sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Reconciled means to be restored to friendship or harmony. We were once separated, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, our relationship with God has been restored. And not only that, but He presents us to the Father 
as holy, which means set apart, without blemish, which means forgiven, and free from accusation, which means that he remembers your sins no more. Ephesians 2.19 puts it this way, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. You are sons and daughters of the King. It is like when the Father looked at Jesus on the cross, He saw us there. And now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. How great and wonderful and marvelous is this precious gift that we have received. What shall we say then? How should we respond to this precious gift? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, that it all is from God. And we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Everything is from God. Everything points to Him. Everything was created by Him and for Him. And we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what is that? That is the work that we have been charged to do and the message that we are to declare that Our sins have been forgiven. Forgiveness is available through Christ. This is Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to describe us as ambassadors. We are His ambassadors. We are His representatives. As though God was making His appeal through us. And it goes on to say that we are not only supposed to share this good news, that we are supposed to implore people, which means to beg people to accept the good news of Jesus Christ. In verse 21, says why we should do this. It says, God made him to be sin even though he had no sin, and we became righteous even though we are not. Isn't it interesting that we do not have to beg God to accept the sinner, but we have to beg the sinner to accept God? And you might be sitting there now wondering, how in the world am I going to beg someone to accept Jesus? I have a difficult time sharing it. But because I love him so much and because what he did for me on the cross, we should beg people to accept him as our Savior. I have a story I want to tell you in closing. There was this minister and this football coach. Now, this football coach was a legendary football coach in Southern California. He coached high school, also coached track. He even coached on John McKay's team at USC. And this minister played for this football coach, and they had a fond affection for one another. This minister actually called plays on this football team, so they spent a lot of time together. And the minister would always ask the coach, 
you need to accept Jesus as your Savior, he preached the good news to his football coach all the time. But the coach pushed back. He rejected that message. No, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to accept that. But the minister kept trying. Often when, when they would go on plane rides or on buses to their football games, the minister would sit by the coach and he would still say, you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. But he would say, look, I love you, I respect you, but I just do not want to hear about that right now so the coach went on coaching and the minister went on to do his ministry and the coach would often say about the minister that he used to play for me and the minister would say about the coach he was the best coach I ever had and I used to play for him well the years go by and one day the minister receives a call from a friend the friend says, hey, you need to go see the football coach. He is dying and in the hospital. And he said, he wants to see me? And he said, yeah, he wants to see you. So he goes to see the football coach. And before he goes in, the nurse says, you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to get any response from him. He's been unresponsive for three days. He hasn't even opened his eyes. He hasn't said anything. You're not going to be able to talk to him. The minister goes in and he grabs the coach by the hand. And he says, coach, it's me. And the coach opens his eyes. And he smiles. And he, after a few moments, he says, coach, one more time. One more time. Will you accept Jesus as your Savior? You have no future if you do not. Please, I'm begging you to accept him as your Savior. The coach couldn't speak, but he nods his head, yes. Yes, I will. The coach even got better after this occasion. The minister went back to see him a, a few weeks later and the coach was sitting in a wheelchair. He had a trach in so he still couldn't speak. And he had this whiteboard and he wrote on the whiteboard, what can I do for my Savior? That's a question we all ask, isn't it? It's a question I've asked myself. What can I do for my Savior who died for me? And the minister looked at the coach and he said, Coach, you don't have to do anything for him. He has already done it for you. He has already died on the cross for you. Well, the years passed and the coach died. And his last request was, to the minister, I want you to do the eulogy at my funeral. He wanted the minister to give the testimony that he could never give. And so all of the coaches and all of the players, which were many, gathered at a local golf course. 
And the minister shared the good news with all of those coaches and players. Who knows how many lives were impacted by that decision. Isn't it amazing that God meets us where we are, pursues us all the days of our lives, even until the very last moment. A.W. Pink said this, Adam did not go looking for the father, the father went looking for Adam. I have one last plea for you guys today on this Easter Sunday. If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That is what you are to do. We always ask that of ourselves. What are we to do? This is what you are to do. You are to go out and share this good news. You are to tell people that there is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. There is no greater gift than that. And if you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, I am begging, we are begging for you to do so. It is the most important decision you will ever make. He is pursuing you right now, right this moment. He is pursuing you. There is no greater gift. The Son died for you. To the parents of young ones, hang in there. We love the sounds. We love the sounds. So we gather today with believers all over the world on this beautiful Easter Sunday morning. And we gather to remember, to commemorate, to focus on the most pivotal day in the history of both heaven and earth. The most pivotal day. While on the cross, Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. I've often wondered if he asked for something to drink before he said that, just so that he would have enough of a voice to say it. Because he knew it needed to be heard. When he said, it is finished, Jesus had done his part. Thankfully, though, we know there is more to the story. I'll tell you a little secret. He's alive. The grave could not contain him. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today changes everything changes everything. Thank you to Bill and Tony for kicking this off this morning. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life of humility and sacrifice, and he was crucified as the embodiment of and the atonement for our rebellion and sin. We hung him there. 
The story picks up in a cold, dark, silent cave where a lifeless body lays wrapped in linen. A stone, large stone, had been rolled in front of the mouth of the cave. A seal had been put there to further protect. And then soldiers were placed, guards were placed to further secure the tomb. His followers were confused. His ministry had come to an abrupt end. Questions swirled in their hearts and minds. Were their commitments to leave everything to follow him now pointless? Were his teachings now proved useless? The long-awaited Messiah was dead. Didn't make any sense. Just three days before, there had been a very public and riotous trial with a subsequent crucifixion. But there were some very strange things happening surrounding these events. Dreams were being had. And in Luke's account, we're told that Pilate and Herod, who had been enemies, kind of bonded through this process and became friends. Kind of interesting. When the chief priest and religious leaders fanned the flames, the crowd had banded together, hurling insults and false accusations to ensure that Jesus was not released as he deserved. The mockery of a trial continued. Have you ever been swept up in a moment and bonded with others over sin? Yeah, me too. But thankfully, there is grace for that because we know the rest of the story. The sun had refused to shine for three hours in the middle of the day. The earth shook with earthquakes. The temple curtain had been torn in two. Matthew tells us that the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Something very remarkable had just happened. Praise be to God that the story did not end in that cold, dark, silent cave. The Holy Spirit had breathed new life into a lifeless body. A heartbeat started again. Jesus Christ was alive. Due to the resurrection of Jesus, we have been set free from the eternal consequences of sin, which separate us from God and lead to certain death. We have also been set free from sin's hold on us. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We are no longer slaves to sin. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead 
and is alive today changes everything. You can't be too careful with who you quote these days, right, when you step outside of quoting scripture. But I read an article by a preacher in North Carolina. His name's J.D. Greer. Don't know much about him. I just really like this article. And it gave me a lot of ideas that I'm going to share with you on these next couple of slides. I've adapted some of his thoughts, added several of my own. But I would, I would implore you, don't take my word for it. I've got scriptures next to each. Read those scriptures. Take a picture if you need to, or I'm happy to share this with you. And then do your own study. Because I want you to arrive at these beliefs on your own. But because of the empty tomb, the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus are absolutely true. Because of the empty tomb, the New Testament teachings of Jesus are absolutely true. Because of the empty tomb, the Bible is the inspired word of God. Because of the empty tomb, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because of the empty tomb, guilt doesn't have the last word in our lives. Because of the empty tomb, injustice doesn't have the last word. Because of the empty tomb, pain doesn't have the last word. Because of the empty tomb, despair doesn't have the last word. Because of the empty tomb, Death doesn't have the last word, nor betrayal, nor loss, nor poverty, nor shame, nor abuse, nor any other kind of evil that we can imagine. None of that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And because of the empty tomb, Jesus is the hope that conquers all. So what do we believe? Here's what I believe, and I've staked my very life on it. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. In a word, we believe in the Trinity. We believe that Jesus Christ walked out of the empty tomb. We believe the tomb remains empty to this day. We believe that Jesus is alive and sitting at the right hand of God. Amen. We believe that we have been called and equipped to make disciples of him. And at a time that only God knows, we believe that Jesus will return to gather his followers unto himself so that we can spend eternity with him in a place where every tear is wiped dry forever. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.38 and 39 For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today changes everything. The cross, we have a couple of them here. They've been on display last week and this week. Ugly, gruesome, torture, death. But the cross has been defeated. As a tradition here at Fourth Avenue, we begin each Easter by displaying the ugly crosses. We look on these and we remember. We remember the birth, the life, and ultimately the death of Jesus. However, just as the resurrection of Jesus has made you and me into new creations, we end each Easter in celebration as we transform these ugly crosses into something of beauty. Just as Jesus transformed us from being dead in sin to a confident hope of eternal life with him, let us transform these crosses into something beautiful, a new creation, as we sing these final two songs this morning. I love the word behold. Think of the word behold. It means to stop, stare, observe, gaze on something remarkable, something impressive. So during these last two songs, as we make our way to the front to bring our flowers to adorn the crosses, I would ask that you behold Jesus Christ, our hope and our salvation. <laughs> 